Christianity, uh, believers would create these unifying statements of belief to really to keep the church together despite some geographical boundaries. And the ascension was always a part of these creeds of Christian faith. For instance, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Creed of Constantinople, and then also the Apostles' Creed. And I'll read to you just uh, briefly a summary of what these would say. They would say... Uh, just a bit of what they would say. They would say, He was crucified, Jesus, for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, was buried, and third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. You know, we frequently teach on the crucifixion, the resurrection, and even judgment, but less frequently do we hear sermons on the ascension itself, the ascension itself. And I, I want to s- submit this morning that if, if Jesus just rose from the dead or was raised like Lazarus and continued on earth, then Christianity pr- would likely have never developed the way it did. The ascension is the completion of the resurrection. And it's in Christ's ascension, as I hope we'll see this morning, that we see His Lordship. His Lordship and His reign over all things is confirmed through the ascension. So, our our main thought this morning is that the ascension creates confidence in Christ's reign, hope in His resurrection, and comfort in His presence. I hope you found the notes provided for you in the bulletin there, and you'll see that statement there. The ascension creates confidence in Christ's reign, hope in His return, and comfort in His presence. You see, it's easy to ask questions like, why has Christ not returned yet? And even at when Christ was going to the cross, there's a parable in the book of Luke in which Luke says, because many thought that the kingdom would come immediately, Jesus began to share a parable. You see, ever since the days that Christ was on the earth, people have thought that his kingdom would come immediately. And so this question of why is the ascension good news? That Jesus would not remain, that the kingdom would not come immediately, but that he would go to be with the, with the Father and that his coming would be prolonged. You see, this is what Christians believe, that Christ has come, but he will come again. He now reigns with the Father in heaven. But why is the ascension? Why is it good news? Why is it good news? And we have several points this morning. I hope you're not intimidated by uh, the notes there. I figured since you got out early last Sunday, we could go long this Sunday, right? That's how it works, right? First, the ascension is good news because Jesus reigns and will return. Because Jesus reigns and will return. Let's read from Acts chapter 1, verse 9. When Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. In verse 10 as well, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus 
was lifted up in a cloud. As one writer says, the ascension is the visible and concrete expression of Jesus' exalted status. You see, this image in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 of Jesus ascending on the cloud seems to be a reference to the Old Testament. A prophecy that the disciples would have been very familiar with. It's from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. I believe these verses will be on the screens for you. I was watching in the night visions, Daniel said, and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went to the ancient of days. David is, uh, Daniel is able to look on and see this playing out in the heavens. He went to the ancient of days and was escorted before him. To him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. All peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. You see, as they saw Jesus lifted in a cloud, these are the things that they thought of. And it was Jesus' ascension that confirmed for them that this wasn't just a man. This is one who reigns. And this continues on through the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 20-21, Paul says, This power God exercised in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. 1 Peter three twenty two, another author the New Testament, Jesus Christ, who went into heaven and who is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. John Calvin said, all that the apostles intend when they so often mention his seat at the father's right hand is to teach that everything is placed at his disposal. You see, Christ reigns over all. This is the implication of the ascension. And the applications for our lives, friends, are are endless. But I want to point to at least one. First, that, that if Christ rules over all, He rules even over the enemies we fight against every day. You see, it's in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 20 through 21 that Paul says that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and He reigns over every power and authority. But then in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. What's so huge about this is these, that these enemies we are fighting against every day are the very enemies that Christ has already defeated, that He has power over. And it's interesting to me that Paul sets this discussion of spiritual warfare immediately after his instructions regarding family life. Because you notice what he says. He says, our battle, our war is not against flesh and blood. You know, it, it seems that the people we're most often tempted to think our battle is against are those people in our family. The people who cause us frustration most often. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's children, uh, whoever it may be, maybe it's some other relatives that we just don't really get along with very well. And that... Paul places this discussion of, of battling against flesh and blood, not, it not really being against flesh and blood, right after that, sections, that section. So Paul reminds the reader that no person is the actual enemy. 
It's the invisible, just elusive nature of the enemy that requires us to use weapons like prayer, scripture, and faith rather than physical weapons like a sword or literal armor. And and these weapons work, friends. The reason weapons like scriptures work against the battle against our enemies is because Christ has already conquered our enemies. Christ gives power to the scriptures to bring victory. He gives power to our faith in him to bring victory over these enemies. You know, when when children are, are fairly young and their mom or dad is trying to teach them a uh, to do something, like for a dad, for instance, teaching a son to cut through a piece of wood, something like that, that the dad will often, he'll do a lot of the work, right, until it gets down to almost the end, and then he'll let the son just kind of finish it off, right? And that's how they, they teach them, and the son gets a sense of, I, I did that, I did that. But if, but if anyone looking on, they know who should receive the actual credit for it, Right? It's the dad who did most of the work. You know, Christ has completely defeated Satan in all the battles that we fight. All the spiritual warfare and all the enemies that we fight against. Christ has completely defeated Satan through the cross. But he still has given us a bit of work to do. And through the power of scriptures, through the power of faith in him we can attain victory over those, those enemies. And it's not as if we receive credit for it, because Christ has already done the main work, the main thrust of the work. But He has, like that child who does a little bit, He has given us something to do. So, the, one of the big applications of, of Christ reigning over all things is that, friends, every battle that you fight every day it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against anything here. It's against invisible powers of darkness that Christ has already attained victory over. So, how are you feeling defeated in your daily life? How are you feeling just cut down? Will you recall that Christ has defeated every single enemy and that He ascended to the Father that He might reign over all things? Another implication of the ascension is that Christ will return. This is in those pass- that passage that we read, Acts 1, 9 through 11, where the angel tells the disciples, Christ will come back in the same way that he went. It's also in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25. Paul is talking about when Christ will return and we also will be resurrected in the same way that he was. And Paul says, then comes the end. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to an end all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. In this context, Paul's talking about the resurrection of God's people at Christ's return. And in some sense, Paul's saying that Christ's return is prolonged, for while he does reign now, He still is putting enemies under his feet. This is a quotation of Psalm 110.1, by the way, which says, Here is the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in all the New Testament. We're always referring to Christ. 
You see, there's some sense in which Christ reigns now, very much reigns over all things, but His return is prolonged until He will bring all those enemies completely over His completely under his feet you see it's like Christ he's reigning over his enemies but as we can see every day through the forces of darkness that are at work and through the sin that's at work in the world it's as if he has them on a long leash growing up we trained bird dogs and one of the things that's really important with bird dogs is that when they get a long way off you want to be able to call their name and then turn around right Are there any PETA members here? I want to be careful about this. So, the way to train them to do this, to always turn around when you call their name, is you get them on a very long leash. Very long leash. That way, you can send them out to go get a bird, and they have the feeling that they're completely free. And then, once they get a ways off, you call their name. Call that dog's name. And they might not listen that first time. They might just keep running. And then you call that dog's name one more time. And as soon as you call the name, you yank that leash with all you've got. And the dog just does a backflip. And then slowly, you start calling that dog's name the first time. And if that dog doesn't stop, you immediately yank that leash. And eventually, that dog knows. When you call its name, it stops. You see, this is what Christ will do with his enemies. They're on a long leash for now, but he will call their name one day, and they will all stop in their tracks. So, Christ, he reigns over all, and he will return, and all his enemies will be submitted to him. Friends, the ascension is not a form of abandonment. Christ is reigning. He will return, and this should create great confidence in us, in who our Lord is, and who He remains to us as He sits at the right hand of the Father. The ascension is also good news because Christ is reunited with the Father and teaches us to be unified. John 17, 5, Jesus says in praying to God the Father, Now, Father, glorify me at your, at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. Friends, we cannot conceive of the beauty that is in the relationship of God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, that before He came to earth, they dwelled together in perfect unity, doing all things as one, always at peace. Yet, Jesus came to earth, and if you recall that on the cross, He cried out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? As 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus became sin for us, so we might become the righteousness of God. And in doing this for a time, God turned His face away, not looking on the sin that Christ had become for our forgiveness. But this was not an eternal separation. John 17, 21 through 22, Jesus says, we, I pray that they will all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us, that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you gave to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. You see, the relationship and the intimacy of Jesus Christ and the God the Father is what we are to follow and to seek after as a body of Christians. 
if you are a follower of Jesus, then you should be intimately committed to other followers of Jesus. And this is what Jesus and God the Father do. There's no sin that should come between you and other Christians. Friends, God the Father allowed His Son to become sin for our sake. Yet they are reunited in heaven and exist in perfect unity. What excuse do you have that you would let a sin come between you and another believer? There is none. The ascension is good news. Because Jesus reigns and will return. It's good news because Christ is reunited for the Father and He teach with the Father and teaches us to be united. And it's also good news because Christ has sent, as Mr. Al read earlier, He has sent the Holy Spirit to us. I don't know if you've noticed before, but sometimes in reading the New Testament, you'll see Paul or other writers refer to a Spirit of Christ. And just for awareness, the Holy Spirit is interchangeable with the Spirit of Christ. Sometimes that name in the New Testament, in Philippians 1.19, Paul refers to the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. These are interchangeable words, names. But Christ sent the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, to comfort us, to comfort His people. John 16, 7 says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, get that, it's to your advantage that I am going away. For if I don't go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. This advocate, paraclete, it means helper. The Holy Spirit is the helper of God's people. John 14, 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and will cause you to remember everything I've said to you. Romans 8, 16 and 26, the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know how to pray as we ought to, but the Spirit intercedes for us with God groanings inexpressible you see Christ sent the Holy Spirit in his ascension to be our personal personal counselor each one of us to be our comforter and to be our friend and guide it is only through the ascension that the spirit is sent to God's people I wonder if you experience that do you experience the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit of Christ's Spirit that He sent to dwell in His people. It's personal. But it is also to empower the church as a whole. He sent His Spirit to empower the church. The book of Acts could really be summarized as the Holy Spirit powerfully working through the life of the church. Peter preaches in the Spirit. Thousands are added to them. Stephen is full of the Spirit, and his death leads to the scattering of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Paul, led by the Spirit, plants churches throughout the Roman world. As one writer says, the mission is sustained and directed by the ascended Lord of the church, mainly through the activity of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, in Romans 15, 18-19, says, I won't dare speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in order to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit of God. Do you, do you want to accomplish great things? All of us have that sense within us, don't we? 
to just want to do good and accomplish good, to, to be known for doing something good. You know, many people do great things in the world, but the truth is that everything that we do here, just ourselves, it dies out. It, businesses die out. Fads change. Anything we invent, it, things advance, and it seems like everything else is left behind. Even nations, whole nations crumble before our eyes. But here's what we need to see, friends, is that our labor in the Lord, whatever we do in the Lord, in the name of the Holy Spirit, it's never in vain. It's never in vain. It doesn't matter what you do. If you don't do it in the power and in the name of the Holy Spirit sent by Christ, it will die. And it will be for nothing. So the ascension is good news because Christ has sent the Holy Spirit to us to be our personal comforter, our helper, our guide through things that we're going through, things that we don't understand and don't know how to accomplish. He will be there for us. He dwells with us. And then He also empowers the church to work together for the glory of God. And then the ascension is also good news because Christ's work of redemption is complete. And his work of intercession has begun. This is what Hebrews 1.3 tells us. His redemption in our lives is complete. It, Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The representation of his essence. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see the picture is like when a king is first enthroned. As at the enthronement ceremony, he goes and he, he sits on his throne. It's a, it's a picture of what he's there to do, to rule. But that's not what a king does 24 hours a day. It's always strange to me in movies when someone wants to go see the king. I mean, they just go to his court and he's always just sitting on his chair there. I mean, is that what he does all day long? Does, is there a toilet there too? He doesn't have to get up ever? Kings don't just sit all day long, they rule. But his sitting is a picture. When he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father, it means that his work of redemption is complete. It's done. Our sins, for all those who would trust in the blood of Christ, our sins are satisfied. They're removed. Just as a human king sits on his royal throne at his ascension to the kingship, but then engages in many other activities throughout each day. So Christ sat at the right hand of God as a dramatic evidence of the completion of His redemptive work and His reception of authority over the universe. But He certainly engaged in other activities in heaven as well. And so Christ sits on the throne to signify that our redemption is complete, but His intercession for us has begun. It's not as if He does nothing now. Hebrews 9.24 and 7.25 Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, the representation of the true sanctuary, but into heaven itself. And He appears now in God's presence for us. So He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Can you picture that or fathom that? That Christ, the Son of God, sits at the right hand so that He might intercede for you? That he might intercede to the Father for you. 
Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who is also interceding for us? The ascension is good news because Christ is at the right hand of God so that he might intercede for all his people, all those who are his children. The ascension of Christ is good news because God will receive greater glory for all eternity. Greater glory for all eternity. And this is from Ephesians 2, verses 6 through 7. Read this, follow along please closely as we read this. God raised us up with Him, that being Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. You see, through the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, those who trust in Christ are also raised with Him. In the words of Paul in Colossians 3, it says, Our lives are hidden with Christ on high, so that even now, as we exist, day in and day out, our real life is, is not here, but it's secure, held in the heavens in Christ, who has redeemed those who trust in Him. And in the coming ages, Paul says, this is what Ephesians says, in the coming ages... In a sense, God will put us on display. Do you see, Christ coming, His second coming is prolonged. It's what Paul says, in the coming ages, God will show the wealth of His kindness towards us in Christ. This is so interesting. And it's so beyond how we think. You see, we tend to think that instantaneous is better. That the quicker God does things, the more glory He'll get, Right? That if he, he does a miracle, he'll get more glory than doing things over a slow process. But friends, this, isn't the, this passage is telling us something completely opposite than the way we think. You see, what, what God is saying, what Paul is saying, is that Christ's coming is prolonged so that more people are trusting Christ and also Christ is transforming people into His likeness over a very slow process, by the way. But in the coming ages, He'll receive greater glory for the kindness that He's displayed in each of our lives. You see, that the idea is that, in a sense, God will put us on display in the new heavens and the new earth so that when people look at each one of us, especially of some of us who have been rotten, and that we'll just look at us and say, man, God was good. How did he do that? It's not that we'll get glory when people look at us, but it's that God will be glorified even more because He's been so kind and forgiving and in His power He's transformed people that we wonder, how in the world did they get to be like that? I knew them before. You see, if, if we all had the chance to, to visit the, the Sistine Chapel, you know, if we all went in to the Sistine Chapel, people have been visiting this site for over 500 years where Michelangelo painted these, these incredible things. You know, we would all walk in and, and we would all marvel at probably different things. Some of us would see the, the depiction of God creating Adam and the hands that, you know, Adam and God, and we would just marvel. Then some of us would see David slaying Goliath. Some of us would see the, the judgment scene and this massive picture of people being judged. 
Some of us might just ask, why do the, none of them have clothes on? What's the problem here in this picture? But, but the art enthusiast among us, if there are art enthusiasts here, I, I would not be able to recognize this, but we, they would comment at a different level. You know, they're looking at all these glorious paintings. They wouldn't just talk about the painting and marvel at the painting. They would begin to talk about the artist, the one who, who did it, the painting itself. They would marvel at Michelangelo that he designed his own scaffolding to paint this ceiling, that he stood for hours and hours with his neck like this, and hours that added up to years so that he could paint these incredible things that at 60 feet below, you would see him at just the right perspective. They would marvel at that Michelangelo was really not even mostly a painter. He was really a sculptor. You see, they would marvel at the artist himself. Not just the project. And it's in this sense that will occur when we are with God forever. That we'll be put on display. And that people won't marvel at us To say that they were great and they did great things. Rather, they'll marvel at God, the one who worked in us to transform us, to make us something worthwhile. Worthy of even looking at. You see, as Christ's coming is prolonged, God's glory is built up so that he will receive more and more for all the work that he is doing in our lives. And lastly, and we'll close here. The ascension is good news because the opportunity for salvation is still open. The ascension is good news because the opportunity for salvation is still open. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord doesn't delay His promises. Some understand delay. But He is patient with you. Not wanting any of you. Peter's saying this to the church. Mind you, not wanting any of you to perish. You see, there are some among us who have been deceived by sin. And he says, not wanting any of you to perish, but all to come to repentance. God wants all to come to repentance. Hebrews 3, 7-14. through 14. We need to remember, friends, that the opportunity of salvation is still open, but there's something special about today. Hebrews 3, 7-14. through 14. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Oh, that today you would listen as He speaks. Don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, in the day of testing in the wilderness. There your fathers tested me and tried me. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I became provoked at that generation and said, their hearts are always wandering and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my anger, they won't enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. But exhort one another each day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. For we have become partners with Christ, if in fact we hold our initial confidence firm until the end. As it says, oh that today you would listen as he speaks. Don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. The ascension is good news because Christ has allowed time for us to confess our sins and to turn to Him for forgiveness and for peace with Him.
But there's something about today. Always something about today because we don't know if there will be tomorrow. We don't know when he will return. And so he says, today is the day of salvation. Won't you turn from your sin and draw near to him and be restored? You see, Christ reigns. Excuse me, Christ reigns and he will return. And the reigning, it's wonderful news for all who have been restored to him and have their sins for heaven for their sins forgiven. But for those who have not had their sins forgiven, you don't have peace with Christ. And so when he returns, you will be that enemy that he pulls back. You will be that enemy that he puts under his feet and that is judged. So won't you turn to Christ if you haven't turned from your sin? Won't you trust in Him for salvation and for life and peace? And Christian, won't you hope in the ascension? Won't it create confidence in you that He reigns, that He is coming, and that His presence is with you through the Holy Spirit? Won't you trust in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us so much that we might trust in you. Lord, we don't have to be anxious and wonder what you're doing. Lord, you you have promised to always be with us through your spirit. And you have promised to come back, Lord, and to bring us to yourself. Lord, help us to trust in you, to cling to you. Help us, Father, today to always turn from our sin. Lord, to to trust that your, your ways are always better and that sin is never, it will never satisfy in the way that you do. Lord, I pray that you would help us if we have been deceived by sin. Lord, humble our hearts before you, Father, and might we experience the day of salvation, your kindness and forgiveness. Thank you so much for how you're working in our lives to conform us to your likeness. And thank you, Lord, that it's not for our glory, but it's for yours. God, we don't count on ourselves. We count on you because you're the one who does this work. Thank you for your grace. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.